What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Today's guest is Mr. Cleon Peterson. He joined us via Skype from his studio in Los Angeles area. We talk Bohemia, the Seattle music scene, environmental context, Tumietto, illustration, commodification, violence, New York in 92, scale, tribalism, parenting, rehab, addiction, being somewhere else, and just playing. So, as always, make sure you go check out MikeMaxwellArt.com. You can click on the podcast, get all the information over there. iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, whatever. You could donate to the show, drop a nickel or a dime via PayPal. Goes into making the show awesomer. Make sure you follow Producer Lex at Producer Lex on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me at Mike Maxwell Art, And, of course, follow the podcast at Live Free Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can follow Cleon at Cleon Peterson on the Instagrams. I think he's on the Facebooks, too. We go over all that at the end. This is a cool show. I've followed Cleon's work for a long time, um, but I didn't know him personally before that. We never had a conversation before the podcast. So it was it was interesting to sort of delve into his whole life and see how that matches up with the work. The show's been getting more and more personal. I think this was another really personal episode. Um, I know I'm trying to be more open and honest as much as I can about my feelings, trials, tribulations in this art world and how it goes for me and what it seems like from uh, my perspective. And we find that most of our perspectives are pretty similar, I guess. The way we look at things tends to be similar. So hopefully that makes everybody feel more comfortable with themselves. Um, do our best to put out the honest shows. So let's just jump right into this thing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Mr. Cleon Peterson. Producer Lex, what's up, man? We are back in the saddle again. <clears throat> what is that song? Who sings that? Is that like Back in the Saddle? We're back in the saddle again. I just sang on the podcast for the first time. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It sounds familiar. I fuck. I can't think. Of. What I think. What I would it be? Foreigner. It's something like that. It's some. It's some eighty shit. I can't believe I can't remember. It's. it's I know it's going to be like a. It's uh. Is it Van Halen? Van Halen. Or like uh. Shit. I don't know. That's kind of. Uh, I don't know. Back in the saddle again. All right. I got to look now. Or it's. Or it could be White Snake. No. no not he, White it's Snake. It's not here. You know that girl that was in the. Uh. The girl that was in that video, oh, the yeah. White Snake video, is from El Cajon. Nice. Oh, it's Aerosmith. Aerosmith. I don't really listen to them. But it looks like, I wonder if it's a cover. It could be. Because there's an old country song called Back in the Saddle Again, but I assume that that might be something different. Um, so today we got Cleon Peterson nice. on the podcast. He's a, he's an OG and does some really cool, like violent, aggressive work. Yeah, his, to, his stuff is like really dominant colors and all that. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear some of the stories behind it and sort of get get to know him a little bit. I don't know him; we've mm-hmm. never met, um, but we have some mutual friends and some interesting connections. So uh, we'll get into that here Let's shortly. Seal the deal. What's uh What's up with you? How's uh How's life treating you? Everything good? Everything's good. Yeah. Um, You're looking fresh in that Live Free podcast yeah, dude, T-shirt. Looking I'm looking ill. <laughs> <laughs> we got um, uh, 
those shirts are almost gone now, but I'm probably going to order some more for the podcast. And uh, the Marcelo Macedo t-shirts yeah. are on pre-sale right now, but by the time, pre-sale will be done by the time this episode goes up. But you uh, go to MikeMaxWar.com, click on the shop, and you can find uh, those t-shirts over there. And if if we don't have your size, email me. Yeah. And let me know that you want a particular size, and we'll we'll make sure to um, get all that together. Yeah. So I guess um, everything else good in life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just need to get back into training again. I kind yeah, of fell I was, off the wagon. I was in training all last week. Uh, did pretty good, but man, it's, I feel a little slow. It took a while to like get yeah. my shit back together. I trained my last training day uh, was on Thursday uh-huh. of last week. And it felt like I had cement blocks attached <laughs> to my feet. Like, That's I was running. Fun. I was like, why are my legs so fucking heavy? I called them mafia boots. Yeah. Like the so, Modest Mouse song. There's yeah. a Modest Mouse song that <laughs> says, uh, your feet will still float like mafia. Or your f- oh, now. Oh, man. There's a Recording song about... Songs b- a I know. I keep, I keep trying to get song lyrics together, and I can't fucking figure it out. Uh, said, your feet will float... Li- your feet will sink like... Uh, your feet will sink like mafia, or no? What is it? You'll sink like mafia, but your feet will still float like Christ. Some, some, there's some word like phrase that he uses. Okay, of you know, like the cement shoes. Yeah, yeah. But being like Jesus, so you could walk on water. So there's like this like imagery of somebody floating, like floating upside down. Oh, okay. It's a good song. That's, I forget. That's uh, pretty deep. No, I, I've only been out of Muay Thai for three days, and it just feels like forever. Yeah, I'll be back in tomorrow. Cool. I'm. Uh, I started working on a collaborative project. There's going to be an art show next month uh, in December uh, in Oceanside. I'm doing a collab with Brooke Sterling, a mm-hmm. local photographer, and we just printed it. We're doing uh, photographers and painters are being linked up for this show. It's oh, called cool. Loose Behavior Two. So look for that. I'm uh, I'm starting to post some of the the work from that that I'm doing. Nice. Um, and then the show. In Nashville is up. It's running. It went on this past weekend. Thanks to everybody who came out and braved the fucking severe weather storm. Whoa. Sideways rain, tornado warnings and shit. Perfect opportunity for an art show. <laughs> um, so thanks for everybody that came out and checked that out. If you want to get some of the work that's left over, contact Octane Gallery. You can find them on Facebook. Uh, just go to my page and you can um, figure all that shit out. So... What do you say we get right into this thing? Yeah, let's do this. All right, let's give Cleon a call. Hello? Cleon Peterson, what's up, my friend? How's it going, Mike? Good, how are you? Good. Um, Do you want to turn your video on? It was on before. Oh, sure. There we go. What's up, my friend? It's uh, it's nice to have you on the show. I want to first thank you for for taking the time to uh, to talk with me. Yeah, man. Thanks for um, giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast. Yeah, no it's doubt. Really cool. Um, I think I feel like I've known your work for a long time, and I guess at the time I remember hearing your name a lot back in the '90s. I, I worked for Black Market, uh, like '99, 2000. Yeah. And I I feel like you were, were you in San Diego around that time, or sometime um, before that. You were in San Diego at some point, right? Yeah, I think I left San Diego in 99, but I think my time is all blurry. But yeah, it's hard to attach. 90, like around 92 till 
whatever, 99, I was in San Diego, <clears throat> in and out, you know? Yeah. I was kind of coming and going a lot. Well, um, where did you grow up then? I grew up in Seattle. Okay. And did you spend most of your childhood up there? Um, until I was, I'd say, 17, I lived in Seattle. Okay. Then I moved to New York. Oh, that's kind of a, a different jump, right? Like, Yeah, I went to art school over there. Okay, so was was art something you had planned on doing from a, from a young age? Um, I guess it, uh, it was kind of like the only thing. I mean, I skateboarded, and then I did art, and that was kind of my two things that I did. <laughs> did, what, did skateboarding come first as like a, one of the like sort of loves? No, artwork came first, yeah. I think. Because I, I, yeah. I've... I talk about this a lot on the show, but like there's a big correlation between maybe I assume we're around the same age, maybe within a few years that for a lot of people like those early skate graphics were really like our first galleries, you know, in terms of like seeing work being produced that like made sense to maybe a young teenage male or or younger uh, like T-shirt graphics, these types of designs that were. Not so much fine art, but it's funny now that like any of those graphics could be shown in a gallery, like with the original art, and have it be fine art. Um, did you find that connection through those things, like skateboard graphics and T-shirts, as a way to sort of attach yourself to making things, or did you have some other uh, sort of influence, or like maybe like family, or, or like come from a creative background or something? Yeah, I think my family was really into art and I'd actually I don't think skateboarding was really the first kind of time that I was exposed to art I, I was really into um like all kinds of art before that uh I think my mom was a dancer and my grandfather was a poet and um and you know we lived in this kind of like bohemian lifestyle I guess like artsy kind of like right after the hippie thing uh -huh. or like we lived in a ha big house and um, like uh, theater groups would come and stay with us and stuff. So I was kind of around a lot, a lot of art and my babysitter uh, back in the day was like a filmmaker. So I was exposed to cool stuff early on and then I'd go to the museums and everything all the time. And, um, and then I had some friends that were actually, a lot older than me and I I don't know why I don't know how I, I mean I guess it's just these people that we were hanging out with I'd, I'd just go hang out with these guys that were older than me and go draw over their house and stuff did you notice like <clears throat> like a personality difference between let's say like these people that were coming to the house and as opposed to like if you go over to your friend's house and they're more like a sort of straight laced like you know, like a, a stereotypical family. Did you notice uh, a difference in the, the way that people acted or the way they held themselves, like a personality trait in the creative types? Well, it's hard I at mean, that young of an really age. It was really like the, the only thing that, I mean, well, we were around kind of two different groups of people when, when I was a kid. And uh, it was like the kind of creative people. And I'd put like skateboarders and stuff like that in there. And then just like really... Um, kind of working class kind of people that would, I don't know, work like at the public market selling beads and shit like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. or like health food or it, all our friends, 
I mean, there, I didn't know anybody that was a lawyer or um, that, that worked in like those large buildings downtown or anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I feel like that becomes a sort of instrumental thing for young people, like seeing somebody who's, uh, let's say, running their own business. You know, like it looks different than somebody who goes to work and clocks the time card and like has a day to day that's fairly monotonous. Like it seems yeah. like there's a recognition of that. Like I feel like I saw that at a young age, like, oh, you can decide what it is that you want to do on your own. And you kind of have to find it in those personality traits because it's not always it's not always just like the job. It's like the way that somebody does their job or the way that somebody chooses something ha- Tends to well, have- I, don't, I don't. I don't even think that the people that worked in in our neighborhood were in my friends' parents and everything. I don't even think they had like time clock kind of jobs. They were more like barely subsisting jobs where they'd go and and like do three hours at like at a bead stand or something like that. You yeah, know? these guys were like uh, the hippies that were kind of left over from back in the day. You know. So did it. Did a lot of people go up north after like the '60s in San Francisco? Is is there some sort of connection to that? You know, because you see that as like the the hub or like the center for that. That Seattle's just weird, man. Like you got a mix of every kind of person, and, and no, it's not uh, like one kind of person. You'll have some guy that's into carrying a sword walking down the street, <laughs> you know, like and then. Next to him will be, I mean, some other kind of extreme. I don't know. It's it's just like the weirdest place. Yeah, I've never everybody been. Is, everybody gets along. <laughs> it's pretty. I mean, everybody likes each other. And yeah, sure. You see, I mean, it was there was a lot of music going on in Seattle too. You know, when I was growing up, and we lived in the University District, and um, and like you know, in kind of a city area, and and bands would put um flyers on our on our little poles out in front of our house and everything uh-huh. and so i was exposed to a lot of that kind of stuff too which i always thought was cool the punk rock is it wasn't really necessarily punk but you know just music flyers all that kind of stuff yeah and it was that whole like do it yourself movement which became even more popularized i want to say maybe in terms of like the Seattle stereotypical air quote grunge scene, you know, like in that like beginning, like K records and like those, those bands that were all touring and playing and performing together sort of created a do it yourself movement that I always say that nine 11 killed. I don't know why it, that seems to be the high watermark, but that was like the point at which it felt like that do it yourself movement and the switch back into like corporate America for the next 10 years transitioned right there. Like there was a a high water tipping point that seemed to occur right around, even if it's not necessarily attached to nine 11, I feel like it's that point, like the post Bill Clinton, George Bush, like that transition of like society, there was a societal shift that took place. And I felt like, and I say, I talk about on the podcast all the time is probably monotonous to people, but that, that it was that moment that that do-it-yourself ethic died. <clears throat> well, see, I don't know, man, because, like, at that at that period, I was kind of, like, checked out. I was in school, and then I went to grad school after that out in Michigan, and 
And I'd say that we were, I mean, I don't know. I think that if you're, if you grew up a certain way and you kind of had that ethos of doing, you know, not being like a follower and, and, and being creative and all that stuff. I don't know if, I don't know if, I mean, I mean, I've always thought like it's about what you're doing and then, I mean, I didn't see a lot of people around me stop doing that. Maybe just because I was surrounded by those people that were still continuing that, you know? Yeah, right. Which it it all depends on what environment you sort of place yourself in, I'm sure. Um, So you you leave Seattle and go to New York to to study art. Are you painting already by that time? Are you are you focused on a particular style or technique or, or medium at that point? Are you still like figuring shit out? Well, you know, like uh, you're always figuring shit out. Yeah, you sure. Know? But the um, but back then, um, I had. I mean, I started painting. You know, like all day long when I was, I think, like thirteen. I dropped. I didn't drop out of middle school, but in seventh grade, I started going to like three classes of school <laughs> a day, and then I'd go over to this college and take classes in art. And, and then. Before you, is that due to uh, not not doing well in school? Is that like being bored and kind of just, or you know, like I fi- I found the same situation. The same thing happened to me. Like I dropped out of high school, but it was mostly yeah. due to me getting in trouble and being kind of an asshole. But it, uh, was that part of it for you, or was it just like? Well, I do. I don't think that I really did well in school. But I don't know. I just and I wasn't like um, I don't know. I I mean I I wasn't like bullied or anything like that. I was like always popular in school. <laughs> like I liked people at school and stuff. But like at the same time, I was just um, maybe thought that I liked doing art more. Yeah. Thought that I don't know. I remember going. I went to uh, one day of high school. And then that's when I just totally quit after that. And I was like, this is, it's just too, too weird for me, you know? And were your, high school. were your folks supportive of that? Yeah, they kind of helped me, um, like, apply to colleges and stuff like that. So right. I just kind of skipped the high school thing. Oh, that's, <laughs> that might be the and way to I do it. I dropped out of colleges. So. <laughs> How many colleges? How many colleges did I drop out of? Uh, I dropped out of two colleges. Nice, beautiful. So, yeah. <laughs> so you, but you went to grad school after yeah, I, after I New York. Yeah, I went back to college and and got my degree, and then I went to grad school after that. Was that a big like a weird shift going from New York? I, I assume you were in New York City. Where'd you go to school? Uh, the first time, Not yeah. School. The, well, the fir- no, the first time was in Seattle. Then the second time I went was in New York, and then I got into all kinds of trouble out in New York. And then I dropped out of that one. And then after that, I went back down. That's how I ended up in San Diego. I started uh, drawing skateboards and stuff like that in San Diego. So that that's why I moved there because my brother was a skateboarder. And, nice. Um, which San Diego is one of the sort of skateboard meccas by now. Yeah. I think it used to be. I don't know if it is anymore, but yeah. um, well, there's some companies down there. I I worked with uh, Todd Swank 
at Tamiedo. Oh yeah, which is uh, I guess that is the hub of the, right. the San Diego skate scene to some extent. So what were you doing there? Were you, you were you were doing graphics? Were you already doing graphic design, or were you doing uh, like hand done illustrations? Because that was well, sort of the boom of graphic design too. Was right around that time in terms of like the modern use of computers and Illustrator and Photoshop. That was sort of like the beginning phases of that. Yeah, at first I didn't know any of that stuff. I I just uh, my brother just said like, hey, send down some. Um, I took I literally like took some Polaroid photographs of some of my drawings and sent them down to Todd. And then he said, hey, come down and do some graphics. And I came down and I lived on a couch in a warehouse for like six months or something like that. And <laughs> no shower. <laughs> warehouse life. That's one of my goals in the next three years is just to have my own warehouse to uh, just do whatever the fuck I wanted. Yeah. Even shower if, if necessary. That'd be nice. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I like living in the warehouse over there. It was in Sereno Valley and it gets really cold down there and it, it's it wasn't very friendly living, you know. Yeah. Did you um, start building art connections via those avenues? You know, as you're starting to produce work, I know. Like, I worked for Shep as his assistant for that period. I guess around that same time. Um, and I know. <clears throat> I feel. I have you connected with Misha Hollenbach for some reason, which I don't know yeah, why. I, I, I feel like Misha. Yeah. Like the your name and his in his name it's a it's a he right Misha, yeah Misha. We used to cause trouble together. And <laughs> well, I remember all the perks and mini posters up around town around that time. So yeah. like that was also like the beginning of street art too, which is something that feels completely different now than it did at that time. Not obviously not the beginning of street art, but like this sort of modern idea that we have of street art. Uh, yeah. were, were you involved in it? I know you do murals and stuff now. We're going to get into talk about your work here shortly. Mm -hmm. um, were you doing any outside stuff around that time as well? Uh, not really. I wasn't really into it. Like, uh, I mean, I always thought that it wasn't, it just wasn't my, my thing really. You know, yeah. I was more into my own little painting world or I don't know. So at that time, were you making the figurative work that you're making now? Is there a correlation or is it, was it something totally different? Uh, before that I did, um, for a while I had kind of a studio at that, um, old Tamiedo warehouse and I made some big paintings, but nothing that I ever showed. I kind of, I, I switched over into doing more illustration for skateboards and graphic design and stuff like that. And then um, later on after grad school, I started painting again. So that's sort of that transition between doing what somebody asks of you to make as opposed to ch choosing what you decide to make, right? Well, I mean, it was so – I mean, when I was working with Todd, it was super free-for-all, you know? Like yeah. I basically just went in and did whatever I wanted to, just made sketches and then – talk to the pros and then and then they'd pick a sketch and then we'd make the board you know it wasn't and then the whole kind of idea was just to be as kind of devious as possible <laughs> <laughs> so but like I'd been shock doing value stuff years and years before that anyways so 
yeah, just trying to throw people off with the imagery. Like, are you trying to trying to shock people or make people like uh, think about something? Was there was there specifics? I mean, all that, all that stuff. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, just just making things that were controversial and not ordinary. I think that was that was kind of the goal. I think that was that was what was special about skateboard graphics. Well, and that was also a period of time at least in my own memory where people were starting to kind of push the boundaries of like what was politically correct or what was uh, sort of allowed to be, you know, we live in this culture that's like really PG 13. Like everything is focused on like marketing to children and people that aren't adults where it seemed to be like, like uh, what was the, like the world industry stuff. Like there was a lot of titties and ass and like, pornographic images that that maybe well, it was were... a it was like a, a real subculture that that was outside of the mainstream and and um i mean and i think that that was it wasn't commodified you know it wasn't like it is now where these big um holding companies own this companies you know right. and then have to produce mass amounts of stuff to sell to people you know like we're I mean, you'd still just make a run of a hundred boards or something, you know? Yeah. And, um, I don't know. It was, I, I, I thought it was fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's again, that's sort of that idea that I was talking about. Like once the money flows into something and you can kind of make the same like street art comparisons, like once that money starts to flow in the do it yourself ethic kind of dies because you have a budget that you could work with. And I think that's sort of what I mean by some of those things having a tendency to to fade away as as the natural progression works on whatever yeah. it is the the idea is and I, I'm, well, I'm trying I, to think I feel like for me I mean because my stuff is what it is I guess like I kind of avoid that whole situation of being commodified by like companies in a way yeah a little bit because um you know or like I was asked to do billboards in Los Angeles and um for i don't know retina was setting it up you know and then like i'd sent them a bunch of um images just of examples of my work you know and and like he couldn't get them to buy off on it just because the nature of like the imagery is is it's not pc enough like to be kind of you know put on all the billboards for a big company like that so in a way like that's a good thing you know because assimilating into like commercial stuff isn't necessarily good. Well, that's a good, a good segue into, into like figuring out some of the stuff you make. So, uh, for people who don't know the work that you make is inherently violent, um, in terms of its imagery. Um, I would say, would you want to describe your process somewhat? I, are you an acrylic painter? Yeah. I, paint with acrylic on boards and spray paint and i put paper on the boards before i paint on it to give it a good texture uh-huh um so your images have if, if one were to describe it to somebody um it looks like total chaos on some level there's um figures that are maybe human uh usually attacking violently other creatures that seem to be similar to them but slightly different um well i think they're all human like yeah 
Well, that's something uh, I, uh, one of the notes I make that it seems like the most violent of the creatures in your work have a tendency to have a, a sort of different shaped head. Yeah. Is that, is that, and like, so you have in, in a number of the works, there's these black creatures that are solid black with uh, like a light color outline. And a lot of times it seems like they're, they have like a lack of neck. <laughs> yeah, they and, just, uh, which gives them like it almost makes them look more um, dominant on some level. Like you, like it makes me think of um, like crazy bodybuilders with like the necks that have like huge shoulder muscles, and that's not necessarily what you show in your work. But there's a tendency to like people with smaller necks seem to be more aggressive for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Is that a, a, a scientific study? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you can look that up. There's a journal somewhere that we says... We can measure their skulls and see yeah, if they... <laughs> certain shaped necks are, are more apt to violence. So it's funny that. that you bring up uh, the, the billboard project and not being able to sort of get the pass from whoever the higher-ups or the powers that be are. I'm curious, and you say like sort of avoiding the uh, commodification of things. I'm always curious as... A painter who makes a living off their work is it hard to sell that that violent imagery sometimes to people like i i kind of look at it from my perspective um like i'll make war images and a lot of times the war images are actually about being against war and against violence and those sorts of things so i'm curious if if that's a case for you if if showing this violence is a way to uh examine it and put it kind of in people's faces as a way to sort of speak out against it or, or and then on the other hand like a secondary question is like when you put these pieces in a place that is meant to sell artwork do you find it more difficult than somebody who maybe makes pretty girl paintings you know like people who who often are buying beauty is it hard to sell to those folks this uh this imagery of violence and murder and maybe rape i don't know it's hard to tell if rape is happening or if it there's consensuality in some of the sexual stuff so there's a there's a big paragraph for you to try to answer to if that <laughs> i mean there is yeah there's like rape happening there's violence happening there's brutality happening i think that um you know i don't really worry about you know, selling this stuff as much as I just worry about making stuff that I enjoy making. I mean, um, you know, people, people like it. And, uh, this far I haven't had any problems, you know? Yeah. But, uh, what was the first question, man? Cause like, <laughs> I, know, I, I, I have brain. a tendency to run multiple hundreds of questions in one. Uh, the idea of whether showing this violence in these paintings is a way to counteract natural violence that's happening in the world. Like, is there a relationship to that? Like being anti-violent. So like I, if I create a, a painting about war, it's typically about anti-war, but I'm using the actual subject matter as a way to speak out against the subject matter. Or is it more like a social reaction to what's happening in our world? Or is it just you like drawing fighting? You could do that too. That's a, an option. <laughs> well, I don't feel like any kind of um, pressure, like external or internal pressure, to be politically correct. And I think that I, uh, I paint kind of the world as I see it. You know, uh -huh. and um, 
I try not to differentiate between like good and bad and things like that. And I try to like shift the roles of like the aggressors and the people that are kind of being brutalized. That's interesting because it seems like I, like for I looked at the recent work that you have on your website. I think from your last show in London. Yeah, and it seems to be one-sided in terms of who's being brutalized and who is the brutalizer. Yeah, just from my perspective. Yeah, so I mean, but who who do you think is being brutalized? <clears throat> uh, all the people in the suits, the suits, <laughs> and uh, the white women. Yeah, not white so as in kinda, Caucasian. Like, that's my like uh, revenge scenario. I think you know. <laughs> Right, so then then I start to think about like when I'm looking at that stuff, if I perceive it as being like there's a certain group that's attacking another group, like sometimes it, it seems as though it's almost shadows of those people's own personas sometimes because the, the what I perceive is like what look like the brutal creatures or the evil creatures, even though you say there's no differentiation between good and evil. Well, there is in the moment, but like on the grand scheme of things, I think like the roles reverse, like as time goes on and stuff like that. Like, so like an oppressor from this, this period can be the, um, you know, the roles shift basically, you know? Yeah. Like the first shall be last and last shall be first type of idea. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of funny, like looking at the works, specifically the ones that are like a city scene maybe, or, uh, you know, like you'll, you'll lay out an entire block basically there's this idea that i was thinking about looking at it like it almost feels as if it's like a time lapse as opposed to just utter chaos all happening at once like there's a sense that the scenery is staying the same but there's different violent acts occurring at different times but on in the same setting is that is that something you try to implant in there or is it about total chaos for you uh, when you're making those things uh, yeah, I don't really think of it in terms of time lapse, but more just in just chaos. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really, um, you know, kind of like considered the time thing, like like the futurists or something like uh-huh. that. That's what it, I definitely got a sense of that. Like, like like you're watching a, um, a camera on the on a on a block somewhere that's just taking surveillance footage. And you get yeah. just like, you know, like the gas station ones where you only get like 15 seconds of clip. Like that's almost what it feels like. Like a scene, like if you erased all the images in the city and just did one at a time, like if it popped up, boom, one at a time, boom, popped up. Like it feels like it's taking a, a time lapse of a particular rough neighborhood, like seeing these things happen over time. And maybe not so much yeah. like it could even be the same figure like attacking people continuously but and then a lot of times it's funny though because like for some reason in my mind like like video cameras aren't even invented in my world (laughs) so like you see the tvs that i draw and they're all old and stuff you know (laughs) like how the fuck do you draw a flat a flat screen tv you know what i mean (laughs) yeah like so like (laughs) so time frame does play out in the work for you on some level like in terms like it's you know it it looks like a dystopian future on some level yeah because i kind of think of it as like i don't know like new york in 92 or something like that you know <laughs> yeah that's interesting i think that and you know i feel like for people you know as the viewer they could put it into their own context like it could even be a future that has sort of gone through changes where you know we think of the future as this like 
technologically advanced sort of time frame of people doing flying in cars and shit. Whereas the future could be a total dysfunction of all that mass technology. Like what happens if all that technology fails and you're left yeah, hopefully with hopefully I'll just get broken down a little bit and turn back into like the seventies or something. You know? <laughs> I yeah, like no condoms. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, like uh, I no don't know, just just get rid of the Starbucks and all that stuff, you know. Oh man. I love <laughs> Starbucks. I'm drinking some espresso right now. <laughs> so um i th- do you ever think about like moving the work into um animation it feels like the work would would play really well into maybe like a stop animation or like have you ever moved the figures around i mean i'd like to do that yeah um i guess it would just be about time and budget and everything yeah like everything yeah <laughs> What's up? You're in LA now. Yeah, I'm in I'm in LA. I live up in Altadena, which is just north of uh, Pasadena. And are you still? Obviously, you're painting a lot. You just you just finished up a show this summer in uh, Lazaridis, right? Is that or the Outsiders Gallery? Is that are those all owned by the same? Yeah, it's all the same. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm painting for a February show in at New Image Art. Oh, nice in LA. What uh? What's the the process you're going through right now? What are you working on? Oh, just some more kind of big paintings, um, some big paintings and some medium sized paintings. Yeah, you did and, that a big mural recently too, right? Uh, I feel like I saw the, a big white wall with red figures on it. Was that in Los Angeles or somewhere else? Yeah, that was uh, like the retina got me to paint on his um, studio. That was a cool project. Oh, nice. And so what, uh, is, is that like, a, a an aim for you? Are you, are you interested in painting big, large wall mural type things like that? Cause you mentioned like not being like the streets, not being all that important to you or whatever. Um, is, is mural work important at all? I know you do. Use well, it I like with- making, I like making big paintings, you know? And so like, if you're going to paint a building, it's pretty big, you know? So yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's scale, you know. Scale is. I like. Uh, I like creating things that are kind of uh, worlds that you can walk into, you know, uh-huh. or or where. I, I don't know. When I was a kid and I went to the museums and everything, I, the big art um, was always really impressive to me. Really connected with me on an emotional level. So, um, anytime I can paint something big. That's great, you know. I, and it put it, it does that thing, like what you're talking about, like putting you into a world. Like when you lose your peripheral vision, when the, the work that you're looking at, yeah, takes over all of your vision, it yeah. does end up kind of putting you into a different world. Which I think I you, even your smaller works have a tendency to do that. I think like especially the ones that are like multi panels that you put together. You do small works too, right? Yeah, I do little, but that um, yeah, I do, I do, I do. So like, I like painting big, though. <laughs> I've always liked painting big, <laughs> ever since I was a little kid. You know, huh? It's it seems like a lot of times for people it's hard. Like again, it gets back to that commodification, like the idea of selling works. But I guess if you're making you're if you're making money in other ways, you it sort of gives you that little bit of freedom to 
create what it is that you want to make. And this is something that's kind of been a topic on the show recently, like in terms like, so you, you also have been doing, uh, I, I believe for the last show you, you got involved in doing some abstract works, maybe pattern abstracted patterns is, is abstraction, uh, something that's like important for you. Is that like another step? So like the availability for you to, to be able to make what you want. I feel like this happens a lot with people who make figurative work is this transition out of like getting bored, maybe not for you specifically, but some people get bored doing the same figures on a regular basis. Well, I basis. think you just want to, you want to just kind of be able to do whatever the fuck you want to do. You know what I mean? And like, uh, you know, not, not be making a show to sell, but to be making a show because you, um, have something to say and you want to make you enjoy making the work, you know, that's yeah. the, that's the primary objective, I think for me. And it always has been. And that's why I've been making art, you know, for 30 years. <laughs> Cause it's funny when people come and talk to you about like, you know, say kind of like a, how to plan out, like how to become successful or something or how to get in into galleries or something. And it's like, I don't know, man, like you just got to paint every day and, and kill yourself painting <laughs> like literally go into existential crisis and fucking like <laughs> decide that you're gonna like you're either i mean gonna pull through it or commit suicide or something like that or just yeah. you know it's it's hell but like if you're driven to do it like you have no other fucking choice you know what i mean and like that's what differentiates like the people that fucking do it and the people that don't do it you know and you know on another level there there's still a lot of people that do all that and still don't quite make it. They don't kind of make the jump. Like it's weird. Yeah. The and again, it, it all kind of, it does kind of come back to like the art world like popularity contest sometimes. Like it, Well, no, there's a lot of things that play into it like um you can just be in the right place at the right time, right. you know? And there can be a receptive audience to what kind of stuff you're making. Which you know, I've done that. I've been in the right spot at the right time at a bunch of times, and I've blown every opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just my style. Well, <laughs> who knows? Maybe you're um, going to get the writer spot soon. Yeah, right? we'll see. We'll see. The the writer spot. The the most <laughs> right. The most righteous of places at the most righteous of times. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of tribalistic nature of the work. Does that ever play a role in the things that you're making? That there's a, you know, we talk about we talked about the oppressors and the oppressed. Sometimes it it almost looks like there's um, like tribalism versus modernism. And you kind of mentioned something about like sort of going back to the '70s. And in the work, it feels like those people that are in the suits and ties are have from my perspective have this sort of modernistic like modern culture like western culture and there is some sort of, of tribalistic nature to the dudes running around in their underwear and bats and sticks and knives and slicing people up are you confronting some of those things with that uh sure yeah i am <laughs> is there a like reason do you have a reason I, I like keep it open you know so that you can kind of like uh Am I, um, making, am I making you be too specific? It, on your own, you know? 
Because I think everyone's going to still, no matter what, sort of read their own interpretation into it. Like, obviously, all these things that I'm talking about are my own interpretations that I'm just trying to project onto you to tell me that I'm right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you got the show coming up at New Image, um, and that's a you're painting everything towards that. When is that coming up? Um, February 26th, I believe. And then before that, Art Basel. Oh, yeah. Are you going down for, for Art Basel? No, I've got three kids, so I kind of stick around town. Yeah. How old are your babies? Six, five, and almost two years old. Oh, nice. That's, that's crazy uh, time Yeah, that's a, you know, it's funny, like a lot of the, the people that we have on the show also have young children, usually around like the two to four range. And it, yeah. it's very difficult for them even to like take a moment away to to do a 45-minute hour podcast with yeah it with, gets interesting and things change in your life when you have kids yeah and it, i imagine the work changes as well um i don't know maybe you know, the way I you mean, work mine hasn't uh i grew up you know like my parents didn't uh shelter my brother and i from things and my grandfather and um i think that it's it's not a problem to expose kids to all kinds of different ideas. You know? Yeah. That's something that I've always thought about. Like if I, I don't have any kids, I have a Boston Terrier that acts like a um, autistic one year old all the time. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> besides that, I, I've always wanted to, if I had a child, I always thought about the idea of being like hyper honest and whether that's a positive thing or a negative thing. Like I would never want to tell my kids that Santa Claus existed when I know that it doesn't. <laughs> You know, like there's a part of me that would be like that, but then the, there's another section of me that's like, well, that's a part of childhood growing up in this Western culture. Like maybe it's beneficial. Like I don't know if it's beneficial or not beneficial for them to think that Santa Claus exists, but on some level, I've always thought like if I had children that I wouldn't want to lie to them necessarily. Well, those are all things you figure out, and you can only figure them out when you have the kids in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's all completely different than you'd, um, imagine do you think about like the way that you're raised and does it uh sort of affect your parenting skills or methods at all like you said like, oh yeah i'm a t- i'm totally a reactionary parent like i'm not <laughs> i gotta be careful what i say because my parents will probably listen to this but uh <laughs> i gotta you know i've just um raising them in a different way than i was i was raised <laughs> which i mean that I think that ends up being the tendency more often than not. Uh, like we, and it's, it's well, there's almost, kind of two, there's two different like ideas. I think a lot of people are really kind of worried about, um, patterns and behavior. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, um, reenacting like things onto kids that they grew up with, you know? Yeah. Or go the exact opposite, you know? That's what seems to happen a lot. It's particularly, uh, you know, just a, a random case, not saying you, uh, like somebody who was maybe raised in not the best home environment, they yeah. either oftentimes uh, repeat those patterns or a lot of times we see that they do the exact opposite and become like really good people, like really good parents, like maybe more uh, uh, in tune with their kids or more involved when when certain people know what they missed in their own childhood, 
it seems like we evolve a little bit and learn to give our kids those things sometimes. Or you do you you end up being exactly like your parents even when you don't want to be. Well, the pro- the problem is is that you don't know what's right, you know. The um for anything, but, right? For anything. Yeah, and the um things that were painful to me, I think as a child, you know, that I had to like struggle with are also the things that made me into the person I am. So you don't want to shelter a kid too much and like have them not actually, you know, be involved in the world. Yeah, that's and a then, that's a total. It's an interesting point because I feel the same way in terms of like, man, if I would have had like a normal structured home life, maybe I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Like the person that I am that I appreciate. There's all kinds of parts of me that I despise and hate, but the parts that like I feel like what make me a good person on some level are those things that I learned from my pains and, and sort of travesties as, as a younger person. Yeah. And if, if you got like, um, you know, serious issues then it kind of like sets you up a, a lifetime trying to figure out what's meaningful to you <laughs> and, and then also like, uh, you know, make your way in the world. So, yeah. I wonder if there's perfect families out there who like no. raise their kids just the right way. Mm-mm. It doesn't exist. Um, so I grew up with like a kind of like stable family, uh-huh. and then when I left the fa- left the house, it broke up. And then I got to really know how I was when that ha- situation. Yeah, happened. so you got to see both sorts of sides of what it's like to be yeah in a fucked up family and uh, what seems normal. Yeah, so I had to figure out like if I was fake or real and how to yeah. deal with it, and kind of. Well, that explains a lot, producer Lex. <laughs> Well, I remember, I, I remember um, like, uh, the first time I went to rehab, which is in 1991, um, I went in there and uh, they gave us all these books and everything, and uh, I was reading these books and I was like, wow, my family is really fucked up. And <laughs> all this time, like, I never even realized it. I just felt like everybody else's family was like that, but I think that... Uh, it wasn't, you know what I mean? And, you know, you get to see things like when your mom like throws chairs at the counselors and stuff like that. <laughs> what, <laughs> uh, like, well, that's not normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And it takes, it almost takes like to getting older or learning about other people's situations before you could really fully examine your own. What, uh, what did you go to rehab for? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, drugs, heroin. Oh, heroin. Jeez. And I guess that's sort of, did that start in Seattle? Uh, Well, I mean, I'd been doing drugs since I was, you know, 11, 12 years old. But the heroin really took off in New York when I moved there. Which I guess that's the other sort of heroin mecca as well, right? Yeah, you can can buy it there. It seems to be, (laughs) it seems to be a, a reoccurrence over the last 10 years of um, of heroin becoming more and more popular, particularly, you know, with opiates in terms of, like, prescription it goes medication. Through cycles. Like, yeah. I think kids are into, like, those uh, pills and everything nowadays. Yeah. You know, the oxycodone or whatever. Yeah, which is, you know, another form of the same... Right, it's all the same. The same substance. Yeah. So you, you mentioned it being more than one time. Did you... Oh, yeah, I've been, like... 
probably over 20 rehabs before. Mm. <laughs> I was it. I got to be part of that. Like uh, you know, when the health insurance would just send you to a rehab, and it was it wasn't like it is today. You know. Yeah. So. What was what was those experiences like? Did it seems like maybe you could get some inspiration just out of being in those environments in terms of like the work that you make. Not saying that it is, but yeah, yeah. I mean, like you get to see like the real drama of humanity in those environments. I kind of enjoy it actually. Yeah. The because um, kind of people are at their most devastated and raw states. You know, like yeah. they're broken. And um, I always used to think of it as kind of like a vacation you know in between using like <laughs> like i got into the hospital for like three weeks and because I, I just needed to chill out for a little bit to get back into it yeah that's i'm <laughs> so taking a eventually so. i'm taking a cannabis break today but hopefully it's not <laughs> taking me that long because i really want some weed that's not as a serious addiction as uh as heroin but we, i've been talking about this on the show too like we just had a guy who um had a, an alcohol problem so he was doing the aa thing did you go did you go through all those sort of religious yeah, I gotta do that things thing that, yeah it's not religious though because <clears throat> no. i don't necessarily believe in god or anything i know see that seems to be the issue like there's a lot of quality aspects to some of that stuff that ends up making you sort of give up to some higher power of some sort but then you have to define what a higher power is and for a lot of creative people, I think a lot of creative people are at best agnostic. I think it's kind of hard to, maybe, maybe. Well, I'm, there's all kinds of different people. Yeah, I'm sure. It's not a, it's not necessarily a negative thing. I think the, I mean, whatever makes people work, you know, like whatever they need to get, get through whatever they need to get through, you know, it's cool. Have you had that addictive personality your whole life? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I mean, just like. The drugs and the alcohol, that's kind of, I mean, it, I can't fuck with that stuff. It's, I definitely have it there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, you I can mean, look, I work like all the time, but I've that, always done that. So I feel like that's another yeah. thing. Like this addictive personality trait shows up very often with people who are into creative avenues. And a lot of times, like for me, I know for sure part of, my addictive personality is attached to my painting. Like there's some sort of uh, chemical reward that I get by finishing a piece. If somebody likes it enough to buy it, if somebody likes it enough to click like on Instagram. But I think the addiction, like the, the, I mean, I think that when things are addicting, you know, like I think it, it, it all revolves around like really negative consequences, you know? So wow. I'd say that the art thing, I mean, it could be, you could have negative consequences, but then at the same time, there's positives there, you know? Sure. So, and even then, like the act of doing it is the sort of separation. It's, it's funny, there's two levels to it, because the, the act of making art is the separation from that, like, wanting mind. The thing that makes you, like, it's almost like boredom, like uh, idle hands will eventually find something to relieve itself. So a lot of times addiction and drugs and alcohol, uh, it comes from a, a place of boredom for some people. And I think for for people who are creative types who always got to be doing something, I feel like that plays a, a pretty significant role in the 
addictive well, I, I can tell you. I can tell you what I. There, sure. I mean, I think I've kind of narrowed it down, and I remember like distinctly the first time I ever did heroin, and I, I know why I did it, and I th- and it was kind of what I was searching for. Is like, I just needed something that would get me out of the way of myself and my my thinking and my self editing and my self appraisal and mm-hmm. just all of that fear and like anxiety wrapped up in making decisions you know and that allowed me to kind of like just let go of all that anxiety and just make shit and and i feel like that for me in my working process is what it's all about is trusting your instinct um not self-editing creating and and just putting in hours you know what i mean yeah so um, I think it was my mind, you know, like I, I was, you know, screwed up. <laughs> and, like most and, of us are. <laughs> yeah. Just stagnated by fear and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. And so do you feel like you've been able to overcome those things now? Or are you still battling? Is it still an issue? No, I think I've overcome it. I mean, I think that actually now... I don't know. I've entered into this kind of new phase in my life where I'm not worried about, um, <laughs> like, uh, it's, I'm not burdened by, um, constant, like constantly trying to like be somewhere other than where I'm at right now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I I'm know, satisfied. I, I know exactly what you mean. And what ambition mean. isn't like kicking my ass every day. You know what I mean? Because yeah, there's been periods in my life where I've always thought like, oh, I fucking, I should be somewhere else doing something else. I should be in a better situation or I should, you know, like that that can fuck you up, you know? Yeah. But and I think that's that, a major issue for a lot of people, particularly in this industry where you're seemingly trying to impress people or do all, jump through all the hoops that end up creating those anxieties and fears. Yeah. But that's, I think that's the key is just letting that go. Uh, do that what you fucking want to do and like let people come to you you know oh that's a i've I've really been trying to like utilize that mentality but everything in my being like everything on the inside is trying to fight against that you know like i've been used i I brought this up recently like i've been trying to use the george costanza instinct so my, my instincts have been so bad in the past that it's like okay because you're making this choice actually make the opposite choice and see what happens. And I've actually been doing that with some of my work, like just destroying shit. Like instead of it being all specific, like figurative work, just like taking a dry brush to wet paint and just attacking it. And it has been one of those things. Like, so I want to do these, uh, these, like I make these abstract backgrounds to paint over the top of, I really want the abstract backgrounds to be the foreground, like the main (laughs) focus. And I'm so scared. Like, I've tried it a few times, and, like, it's almost like I dip my toe in the water, and it's a little too cold, and I jump it back out real quick. And I yeah. I just haven't let my foot sit in the water long enough to uh, adapt to the change. Yeah. And it, it really comes down to, like, that anxiety and fear. And, like, for me, and again, for me, like, if I'm being totally honest, I know that I need to sell stuff to be able to eat and take care of my family. So, like, it really is a a constant fear, anxiety, and pressure to make these things that I think are going to be valuable to other people. And it does, it gets in the way. It makes you make work that maybe isn't the best work that you could be making. 
And it keeps you from doing those things that you really want to do, which tends to be why a lot of times why people get into art. Like I didn't want some fucking asshole telling me what to do every day. I didn't I didn't even want to be told when to wake up every day. Like I want to be yeah. able to make those choices on my own, you know? And so but again, it's that fear and anxiety that sort of keeps us from maybe taking risks sometimes. But I think what happens is if like it's like if you start to practice that and you start to kind of wear that and then people treat you that way because they just it's like something that you can feel instinctually you know you've Uh seen people that have confidence and you've seen people that believe in what they're saying and it's like and then you you know you see other people that are kind of timid and like uh that don't feel um confident and you know you like instinctually you can pick those people out and then you almost respond to them in the way that in with whatever kind of energy that they're putting out there you know what i mean yeah totally so You know, I learned a lot about like, and you can see the fakers, like right? You can yeah. see the fakers too, the ones that are pretending to have confidence. Or, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But I learned a lot about like, uh, you know, when I was in grad school, we had to have to write um, kind of critique criticisms of our own work, and then put it out there for the <laughs> entire class. There was like seven students in each year, so there were fourteen students there, and. Um, it's interesting, or, or actually, we'd write it for, for the other people's art, you know. Oh, so when I was going to say, if you wrote it for your own, I wonder how brutal we did. We wrote it for our own, but that was read after the first, okay. after the critique. Uh-huh. So you just you realize like how things that you say about yourself, or things that you that p- other people say, like the way that you frame a conversation, can completely like lead people into like you basically you're setting up the parameters for what you're going to talk about do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah 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 i do <laughs> we do a podcast here we uh we talk with people yeah yeah and i it's funny you say that because a lot of times i'll uh i'll have the whole entire conversation set up in my head how i think it's gonna go uh-huh. rarely ever goes the way that i think it's gonna go but i do that same thing like sort of set up the parameters thing. ahead of time yeah. Well, did you find in that situation, did you find that what your own critiques of yourself were similar to what other people's critiques of your own were 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 there similarities in the critiques? Uh well, um because so for instance, I I just finished this church painting and I'm yeah. looking at it from the maker's perspective and I I was telling my wife I was like I have no idea how people see this. Like, I only know how to see it from my own eyes, and I know how I built it. I know the entire construction of the entire thing. Not an actual church, but a painting of a church. Like, I know how I formulated the whole thing. Yeah. So I I look at it through a very maybe narrow perspective in terms of, like, I know how it's made, so I have a certain view of it. But people who weren't there for the entire making process could have a totally different viewing process in terms of, like, what they see. And I have no idea. Like, I'm totally disconnected from what I think other people are going to perceive. Like, like I might like something that nobody else would like. Do you know what I mean? But I think that, that um, like, I, I have a problem with kind of defining what the work is about and then kind of trying to sell that to the audience. And um, because I like it when it's more open-ended, you know, and yeah. that people can bring their own interpretations and um, insights into the work because – it also creates more of a dialogue, you know, like, um, 
And and I figure I also thought, you know, like if you're sitting there explaining the work and you're right on point and you're kind of like trying to it to uh, communicate something very, I mean, there's a place for that. But um, when things are when art is emotional and uh, you're trying to create connections with people and and not have it be so literal, you know, one to one kind of thing. Like I think that that's that's the power of art. And uh, I think that um, trying to, you know, pound what you want into somebody else's head isn't necessarily always like doing you a service, you know what I mean, or doing me a service. So I like to I like to hear what other people say. I like to put out stuff that is challenging to me and that I don't even necessarily know what it's about, you know, yeah, and just sure. like um, and just play basically. That's all right. That's the uh, public service announcement for today. Just play. Just play just around. Have fun and play. Yeah, I like it. All right, that's what I'm gonna do today. Let's um, let's plug your website. Where can people find your work online? You, you do the Facebooks or the Twitters or any of that action? Yeah, I do that. Uh, or the I guess the Instagram and all that. I think it's just at Cleon Peterson. That's how you do it, right? Yeah, at Cleon Peterson. And then my um, and then my uh, website is just CleonPeterson.com. Cool. <laughs> www. <All> right. <laughs> I'm right, not Cleon. really tech savvy, you know. So. No, you're all right. That's no, perfect. And uh, I'll post links on the podcast, uh, Facebook, and and website so people can go find your stuff if they don't already. I'm sure most of the people who listen to the show are pretty art savvy and know what's going on out there. So I'm sure most right. of the people are familiar with your work, but um, we'll we'll get some people over there if they aren't already. And Great. Uh, I want to thank you again for for taking the time to shoot the shit with me, Cleon. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Mike. Let's do internet dap. Get some knuckles on the stream. Boom. All right. (laughs) Thank you, brother. Have a great day. All right. See you later. All right. Well, my name, it is Sam Hall. Sam Hall. Yes, my name, it is Sam Hall. It is Sam Hall. My name, it is Sam Hall. And I hate you one and all. And I hate you one and all. Damn your eyes. I killed a man, they said, so they said. I killed a man, they said, so they said. I killed a man, they said, and I smashed in his head, and I left him laying dead. Damn his eyes. But a swinging, I must go, I must go. A swinging, I must go, I must go. A swinging, I must go, while you critters down below yell up, Sam, I told you so. Well, damn your eyes. I saw Molly in the crowd, in the crowd I saw Molly in the crowd, in the crowd I saw Molly in the crowd And I hollered right out loud Hey there Molly, ain't you proud? Damn your eyes! Then the sheriff, he came too, he came too Oh yeah, the sheriff, he came too, he came too 
the sheriff he come to and he said sam how are you and i said well sheriff how are you damn your eyes my name is samuel samuel my name is samuel samuel my name is samuel and i'll see you all in hell and i'll see you all in hell damn your eyes <laughs> 